Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. As things get worse and worse and worse for the ordinary person, because there's no development, there are no serious projects, the education gets run down, there's no healthcare, there's no hope. As things get worse and worse, the need to control that person who is getting more and more unhappy and more and more angry, the need to control that person becomes stronger and therefore the state becomes more and more brutal in its dealings with, with the people. This podcast is drawn from a lecture by celebrated Egyptian author Adaf Suef about the ongoing revolution in Egypt. It was the annual lecture of the International State Crime Initiative at King's College London and was held at the end of 2013. The State Crime Initiative studies and records the violations of human rights by governments and other state actors. Genocide, torture, brutality and also corruption, cronyism, economic exploitation and negligence. As Adat Suave makes clear, these things often go together and overturning a criminal state is a long-term and dangerous undertaking. Adaf is introduced by Professor Penny Green, co-director of the International State Crime Initiative. I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening to the fourth annual lecture of the International State Crime Initiative. Adaf Suwaif is a celebrated novelist and equally celebrated political commentator. Many of you will know her novel, The Map of Love, shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1999, and her more recent Cairo, My City, Our Revolution, which beautifully captured the routine lived experience of extraordinary times in Egypt. Her brilliant reporting from Tahrir Square during the days of the revolution filled the watching world with excitement and expectation. We lived the Egyptian revolution vicariously through her very personal but deeply analytical accounts as we celebrated with the Egyptian people the overthrow of the criminal Mubarak regime. More recently, as revolutionary hope has turned to fear, dreadful disappointment and despair, Araf has provided biting critiques of both the Muslim Brotherhood who rose to power on the back of the revolution and of the military who deposed President Morsi. Despite the violence, repression and desolation, Araf's writings served to keep the fire of revolutionary change in Egypt alive for us. It now gives me the greatest pleasure to hand over to Araf Suwaif and her presentation, The Ongoing Revolution. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I continue to call it a revolution, even though there are people who call it an uprising or uh, various other sort of smaller uh, descriptions. I believe it is a revolution because it has actually changed the, the mindset of people. And it is ongoing. In fact, I would say that this revolution has been in the making for a number of years and that the phase of it, which boiled over in January 2011, started in 2000, 
with the support of the people for the Palestinian Intifada. And since then, it's never gone away. There has always been protest, and it has grown, and it has spread. And then it, it reached a climactic point in January 2011, and then again at the end of 2011, and then again on the 30th of June of this, of this year. So citizens insisting on a radical change faced by an insistence on the part of the system to remain the same. The numbers of citizens will grow and shrink. The people that you will see participating in the revolution will grow and shrink. It's a kind of organic process. And their orientation might also shift, and certainly their tactics and strategies change. Their mode of action changes. And the system can also change forms, and it does, um, but I think with less freedom than the people. So turbulence has been constant almost daily uh, since 2004. Confrontations, which are uh, detentions, people being dragged off the streets either as a result of confrontation or simply as an act of kidnapping, continuing torture in police stations and in jails, um, strikes by workers or in the universities. And then you have intermittent happenings, things that do happen repeatedly but intermittently. So, for example, in the last three days, we have had a train disaster. This is the third train disaster that we've had in the last several months where the signals don't work or the signalman isn't there and a bus doesn't stop and so you have a crash where a whole lot of people are killed. So, in varying forms, we have disasters whether they're to do with transport, whether they're to do with buildings collapsing, but they're basically the physical manifestation of the rundownness that the country um, has been allowed to, to suffer. And also intermittently, we have a police officer or a state security officer killed. Attacks on posts in, uh, mostly in Sinai. And then we have exceptional. So exceptional for the last three days, the events of Muhammad Mahmoud, the commemoration of the events of Muhammad Mahmoud, and legal activities such as the current writing of the constitution, for example, and current attempts to push through certain laws. So if I may, I'm going to concentrate on Muhammad Mahmoud as an entry into, into what we're talking about. Muhammad Mahmoud is the name of a street that branches out from Tahrir Square in Cairo. It was one of the climactic moments of confrontation between people and regime, in, uh, the military at that point, and, and the police, but under the command of the military, in 2011. The street was named after actually a particularly vicious minister of the interior back in the early 20th uh, century. You will remember that 11th of February 2011, uh, Mubarak stepped down and the military took over and the military was headed by SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, and SCAF was the ruler for about a year. There was a constant tug with the revolution on the streets about uh, a cabinet and who should be in the cabinet and then what authority the cabinet should have. Um, and there were constant confrontations, which escalated. And the escalation, the, the, the violence, was always instigated by 
the authority, the authority being uh, the military. So on the 9th of October, I mean, there were various confrontations leading up to Mohammed Mahmoud, which is what we're going to talk about now. Essentially, on Friday, the 18th of November, uh, Friday was declared a day, the day of the single demand. And that single demand was that the military should announce uh, a day, a date, when they would hand over power to a civilian government and that they would commit themselves to running um, elections in preparation for that date. So people came out and the, the, the day of the one demand happened and then people on the whole left, but a group of about 100 uh, families of uh, people who'd been killed through the course of the preceding months of the revolution and also people who had been injured to a degree well, maimed, basically. So about 100 families remained, and the police came down and started to, to disperse them by force and was extremely, extremely violent in dispersing them. And so the people who had been, or some of the people who had been um, on the protest started fighting the police and trying to, defect, to, to, to protect the families. And the response, again, was extremely brutal. This went on for a day. The general populace heard about it, and so people started flooding into Tahrir. Hospitals, field hospitals were set up, and it, it, was, it was a very violent confrontation. The reason it became known as Muhammad Mahmoud was that this is where most of the action happened. And so what the young people were doing was that they were blocking Muhammad Mahmoud to protect Tahrir. The police and the military could have gone round. There were lots of other streets. And in fact, lots of skirmishes happened elsewhere. But they insisted on taking on people in Muhammad Mahmoud. And it lasted six days, at the end of which about 50 people had been killed. It became an iconic event because, because it lasted so long, because it had so much sympathy from ordinary people so that people were flooding in to help, because there were acts of extreme courage that happened. Um, because there was innovation. This was when we first saw the motorcycle ambulances, for example. So you have two guys and they wedge a person in the middle and rush them off to hospital. If you're walking normally in a street and a, motor, it's a, a young man on a motorcycle scoots quite close to you, normally you're worried because your handbag can get snatched. So at other times, they can act in unlawful ways. In Muhammad Mahmoud, and subsequently, every time there were confrontations, suddenly it was like a magic wand. They changed, and they became the saviors of the, the injured. And the other thing was that the police shot directly into people's eyes. Ahmed Harara, he's a dentist, lost his first eye on the 28th of January, and he continued to take part in the revolution and lost his second eye on the 16th of November in Muhammad Mahmoud. And he was one of, of many, many people who, who lost eyes, so that, that became something that was commemorated in the giant graffiti that went up in the street. This is Muhammad Mahmoud, and this is why it became very important to commemorate it. It led, in fact, to the events of, um, of Cabinet Street, where you have the picture which everybody a scene of the young woman being dragged along the street, the young woman in the jeans and, and the blue bra. That was sort of the continuation of this. So, 
and, and another thing that happened in Muhammad Mahmoud was that um, as the army and the police were beating up people and killing people in the street and in the square, they were also dragging them off kind of like to tidy them away on the side of the road. And it became a thing of um, like throwing corpses in, in the dustbin kind of thing. When November came round again, there was the issue of commemorating Muhammad Mahmoud. That was going to be the first anniversary. This young man, his name is Muhammad Geber, and he became known as Jika, or he was known as Jika because he was also a football ultra. He was a student. He was an extremely active and dynamic leader of um, the high school student groups. He was one of the people who, like me, like many of us, in the second round of the presidential elections voted for Dr. Morsi rather than voting for the military candidate or spoiling their ballot and therefore being potentially responsible if the military candidate came in. And so even though he didn't want to, but he voted for Morsi and he went out and celebrated Morsi's win as being a civilian win and a, a change win as opposed to stagnation and the military. In the commemoration of uh, Muhammad Mahmoud last year, he was killed. I mean, he was one of three people who were killed. So how do you commemorate Muhammad Mahmoud? You can't brush it away. You can't say, well, we're not going to commemorate it because there has been no justice. There has been no closure. There has been no retribution. And people have friends and have family. And also, for all the uh, revolutionaries, the remaining revolutionaries, this is, this is almost a sacred um, moment and a sacred trust. And they're not going to not go out into the streets and, and commemorate it. So, surprise, the Muslim Brotherhood say that they're going to go out and commemorate the martyrs of Muhammad Mahmoud. A key thing about November 2011 was that the Islamists stayed away. And then the army says that it's going to go out and commemorate the martyrs of Muhammad Mahmoud. And in fact, General Sisi makes a statement inviting everyone to go out and commemorate the martyrs. So suddenly you've got the people who killed you and the people who abandoned you to be killed coming out to commemorate the event and to appropriate it. So how do you deal with that? If you decide to stay home, now remember that you're the one that they both don't like. And they are both armed and both violent and they both want to kill each other and they both want to kill you. And so if you're out there and there are going to be confrontations, even if you don't confront anything, you are very likely going to be caught in the middle by accident on purpose. So what do you do? Now, you know that the young people are not going to stay home. Jika's friends, the friends of the 50 people who were killed or who had their, and, and the many more, I think it was 4,000 severely, severely wounded in 2011, they're not going to stay home. So how can the older people who still are within the revolution and who are going around thinking, you know, how can this be organized? How can we try to protect them? And can we, in fact, try to protect them? So Muhammad Geber, Jika, his family decided to hold a commemoration for him and his friends on the 18th. In other words, one day before the big thing where everybody was going to go out and where it was going to be very dangerous. And they were going to hold it actually just off 
um, in a square at the very end, the other end of Muhammad Mahmoud from Tahrir. So kind of saying, we are going to try and stay out of harm's way. And everybody else said, well, we're going to go out and have an orderly march on the 19th and try not to, um, not to have people killed. Muhammad Mahmoud, there had been no closure, and this is why it has to be commemorated. The issue is so big, and it's so powerful, that one of the things that Muhammad Morsi had to do was he had to appoint a commission of investigation into the killings of the young people of the revolution. He fought it, he tried hard to wriggle out of it, but eventually he was forced to put together a fact-finding committee, and they worked for some six months, and they put forward a document, many thousands of pages long, and it has been sitting in a drawer ever since. So Dr. Morsi did not make it public, and then, of course, General Sisi did not make it public either, and the current government also seems to have no intention of making it public. One of the central demands of the revolution since people started getting killed was just retribution, or the concept of qasas, which is... Uh, just punishment which carries within it the idea of closure, the idea of the family arriving at some kind of, of peace. So this insistence on, on the law and on the idea of law was very much part of the revolution, even though the law had for a long time not actually afforded the individual citizen any protection from the confrontations with power, people somehow continued to believe in it and continued to believe that the failures of the law were to do with its not being implemented properly. So, for example, there were lots of cases that did receive what people would consider a just judgment, but were not acted upon. Very many corruption cases, for example. There was a lot of resistance to a lot of privatization that was going on as part of, of course, restructuring and doing what the IMF told you to do and, and so on. But the deals were corrupt and people took them to court. And there were several judgments where the, the, the judgment was that the deal was corrupt and was incorrect and could not go on and that the company or the factory or whatever had to be handed back to the state and none of that was acted on. Cases of displacement where people were moved from one location to another against their will and the court ordered that they had a right to remain in their place and was not acted upon. But the general perception was that if the law was properly implemented, it would do what people believe it's there for. In um, June, this last June, the 2nd of June, 2013, the Constitutional Court ruled on a case in front of it, ruled that even in times of emergency, it was still unlawful to go into people's homes without, to break into people's homes without a warrant, and it was unlawful to hold people beyond a certain amount of time, and it was unlawful to use coercion and so on. So the Constitutional Court ruled this June 2013. But the case had actually been brought before it in uh, April 93. April 1993. It took them 30 years to decide to look at it and to put forward a judgment. But when people think that the law isn't being implemented properly, then the question is, who is it being not implemented properly by? And when you follow that line of questioning, then you arrive at the state. And quite soon, you recognize that the state is actually no longer 
the representative of the people, it's not the sum total of the community, but essentially it is, in our case, a collection of individuals who are using their power and their position to enrich themselves and their friends. They are doing this with varying degrees of some of it above board but morally not very uh, nice and some of it is, is downright criminal. The revolution when it came was not about dismantling the state the majority of the people who went out on the 25th of January and who stayed out until they got rid of Mubarak were not there to destroy or dismantle the state, but they were there to reclaim the state and have a state which is run properly and have a state which conforms to the rule of law and where the law is as it is meant to be, where everybody is equal in front of it. It was wanting a state that did its job, that planned, that provided security, that it was possible to run your life through in return for, of course, you know, the social contract, the taxes that you paid or whatever. And if you unpackage the slogans of the revolution, bread, freedom, social justice, that is really basically what it amounts to, that you want an economic system that works for the majority of the people, that you have human rights and that you have a restructuring of the distribution of wealth to mitigate the huge gap that I mean, Egypt isn't the only country, but it is in countries like Egypt that you see it at its starkest. Basically, for 40 years, the state's machinery had just been used to facilitate the enrichment of a small group. And if you look at any aspect of life in Egypt in the last in the last 30 years, and very much so in the last 20, you see a country that is, it's as if it's under occupation. The degree to which the people don't matter. So uh, when it gets to a point where the son of your president is trading in the foreign debt of the country, the monopoly of steel, the uh, subsidies on energy going to the very rich with their cement factories, and so on, and so on. So because its main aim is to enrich itself, it neglects or even runs down deliberately institutions that can get in the way of money making. So if you want to create, to make money through creating private universities, you run down the national universities. Similarly with hospitals, if you appoint one of the largest owners of private medicine as your Minister of Health, for example, even garbage collection, which was running perfectly well on a homegrown, basic, sort of organically recycling system, gets taken away from the people who've done it for hundreds of years and gets given to Spanish and French companies to run it. And the upshot is that you have an army of street sweepers who are actually beggars in the street because they don't get paid and the garbage piling up. But meanwhile, somebody along the way has made a lot of money in uh, commissions the point is that as things get worse and worse and worse for the ordinary person, because there's no development, there are no serious projects, the education gets run down, there's no healthcare, there's no hope, as things get worse and worse, the need to control that person who is getting more and more unhappy and more and more angry, the need to control that person becomes stronger and therefore the state becomes more and more brutal in its dealings with, with the people. Um, one more thing is that eventually it's actually like the state, instead of simply being a facilitator for the very rich and powerful 
and an enforcer holding down the people so that they can continue to be robbed, it then itself turns into some kind of pickpocket. Suddenly, they're going to bring in a whole load of, of, of new white taxis. And anybody who owns and runs an old black and white taxi can trade their taxi in and will be given a loan at good rates to get this new taxi. And they're going to start afresh and have a, a, a new car and so on. And so people do that. But then it turns out, actually, once they've done it, it turns out that the contract that they have signed ties them into doing a service every three months in particular garages that belong to part of the elite. And that in those garages, you're fleeced, basically. And you're not allowed to do stuff outside, like change your own oil or whatever. It all has to be done through those garages. So basically, the state has got its hand in your pocket. And the people at the lowest level, even within the, the, the system, are left with so little that they are forced to become, to rob their neighbors. The head of police in Cairo gets a salary of one million pounds a month. The policeman on the street dealing with the people gets maybe 700. So he runs a protection racket. The same in education. So every organization that comes into contact with the people is like this and needs to be paid off, bribed, and so on. As well as becoming more and more brutal in keeping people down, the state also has to keep outside powers happy because Egypt is in a very particular position and it needs to remain stable. So it needs to keep, for example, the United States happy. What that leads you into is it leads you into a certain economic pattern, it leads you into borrowing, it leads you into structural reforms that the people in general object to. It also leads you into particular deals like selling your gas to Israel for practically less than the cost that it costs you to um, get it out of the ground, like playing a particular role with regard to Palestine, like an extremely dirty role that Egypt has been playing for years now. The best one of all, of course, is uh, to become the place of choice for extraordinary rendition. And with the country becoming the torturer for the Americans, I'm sure that when the research is done, it will turn out that the torture in the normal, the torture of normal people just taken into a police station or into jail in Egypt also rises. So that in the last five years or so, it became an expected thing that if somebody was taken into custody, they were going to be beaten, tortured, ill-treated, and so on, and that that also happened in jails. This level of criminality on the part of the state is, of course, what brought the revolution about. And we all heard Selmeya, Selmeya, peaceable, peaceable. The image of itself that the revolution was presenting was that it was peaceable and it was law-abiding. Now, this is not exactly accurate, but I think that what is accurate is that people acted according to what they believed was right. In other words, when people in the poorer districts, when young men in the poorer districts went and burned police stations, they did not believe that they were committing a crime. They believed that what they were doing was right because they and their friends had been tortured, beaten, ill-treated in those police stations. They burnt down the police stations, but they didn't loot the shops or smash up cars, for example. They burnt down the NDP, the National Democratic Party headquarters, Mubarak's extremely hated party headquarters, but right next door to it, there's the Egyptian Museum. 
and people protected that, made chains, human chains around it and protected it so that it wouldn't be said that it had been looted at the time of the revolution. So I think that what is more accurate to say is that people acted out their ideas of right and wrong and remained within what they believed was right so in confrontations with the army. If people got hold of an army officer or a soldier on his own, the wounded were treated, soldiers who broke down were comforted. This idea of knowing right from wrong and acting within right was very, very powerful. And it is connected to, to the idea of, of the law. The revolution could not have happened and it could not have remained happening, remained ongoing, without the support of a number of organizations working at, at tremendous risk and cost to themselves, which are basically uh, human rights organizations. Some of you will know Aida Sefadawla, of course, the uh, Nadim Center for the Support of Victims of Torture. Monamina, uh, Doctors Without Rights. Leila Suif, uh, Freedom of the Academy and of the Universities. Mahinur al-Masri, lawyer, um, carrying out the defense of a lot of the activists who get uh, detained in Alexandria particularly. Raja Omran, again one of the founders of the front for the, the legal defense of the protesters. These are the people who really, don't know how they do it, have been working non-stop for about 13 years and who are always there at the front. And it, it is interesting that the extent of the input of the legal NGOs um, and, and the lawyers, there are lots of men as well, I just couldn't quickly find any pictures of them. Um, and the thing that the revolution also has done is that in the absence of the state, groups have formed that have really taken on functions that, that they wouldn't normally have to. And these groups continue. Again, this is part of why I say an ongoing revolution, because when SCAF came to power, when SCAF came to power, it really it took advantage of this tremendous hunger for rightness and for correctness, and it immediately plunged the country into a whole lot of legalistic procedures, which really were a red herring and really actually sucked a lot of breath out of the revolution. So SCAF came to power and said, okay, you want elections, and of course you have to have a new constitution, which we didn't have to have, really. We could have lived perfectly well with the 1971 constitution, removing the amendments that Mubarak put to it. But anyway, so you have to have a new constitution and you have to have elections. Which would you like first? And how will we decide which you would like first? Let's have a referendum. So here we go, and that was the first exercise in the ballot box for people. That was March 2011, and it was met with, it was, with tremendous happiness. At last, people were going to go and vote, and their votes were actually going to be counted. And there was a more than 80% turnout. One after another, these uh, exercises, the election of, the, uh, of parliament, um, further referendums, election of the president, bit by bit, people came to see that actually they didn't matter. Actually, they didn't change anything that was happening on the ground. And so the last one, which was the election of the president, you had something like 25% turnout. And that is the disillusionment that was being 
put in place and where the revolution was about empowerment and where at a certain level people do feel empowered and do feel that they can change things if they want. What is constantly being pushed back at them is, no, whatever you do, things can't and won't change. And this is the argument, the dialectic that continues. A lot of people have gone missing during, during the revolution. From time to time, you learn that in the morgue there are 80 bodies that nobody has claimed. And all the time, there are families, parents, who are looking for somebody who went out to Tahrir or went out to anywhere or went to work or went in the subway and just never came back. So this, this group, Hanla'ihum, looks for them. This group, Watan Bilat Azib, a country without torture. And they have actually just scored a very important um, victory in that with the constitution which is now being written, not only prohibits torture, but actually describes it better than in the past. In the past, well, it continues to be the case, but uh, torture, physical abuse or whatever, abuse of any kind was only torture if it was to elicit information. So if somebody was taken into custody and just beaten up for the hell of it, then that wasn't torture. And so now, the article that they have managed to put into the draft of the constitution says that torture is what is described as torture by, uh, I think it's the United Nations, or, but it's the, the, the generally agreed definition of, um, of torture. The no to military trials, no to uh, court-martialing civilians, people, have been incredibly important. We've had about 16,000 civilians court-martialed since the revolution began, and this is again something that is being fought over in the constitution now and we don't believe that the military are going to allow an article that prohibits the court-martialing of civilians. It's probably going, to, probably going to be put in the constitution that you cannot court-martial civilians except in the following cases and that's going to constitutionalize it which means that we're going to have to go back and rewrite the constitution again one day. So, to sum up, since the 11th of February, we have had SCAF, the Muslim Brotherhood, and now the interim government, security state, and every one of them have proved that really they don't have any intention of steering the country towards human rights or a more just economy or any of the aims of the revolution. Um, but every one of them has also adopted the language of the revolution as a camouflage. So you, you talk, and meanwhile you try to arrange the structures of power to continue the same system of exploitation that was there, but with different faces. And so, of course, while they've been doing this, it has continued to be necessary for them to kill people. And now, of course, to go back, the attempt is that they're sort of holding the fort but really to make the law do what they want it. So if uh, detaining people isn't legal, then let's institute a law that does make it legal. We have the battle over the articles of the Constitution happening, but at the same time, and at the very beginning when I said we have exceptional things happening right now, there are attempts to push through an anti-terror law, um, a law that organizes but really outlaws protests, a law to do with the right to unionize and a law that governs 
the behavior of NGOs, what they can do, where they can get their funding, who controls them, and so on. On the one hand, they're trying to, to put certain things into the Constitution. On the other hand, they're trying to push laws in before the Constitution comes into, into being that will allow them more control of the country. Resistance, the resistance to all this, of course, is what is happening with the ongoing revolution, is the street action. All the groups, all the NGOs, the legal NGOs, the support NGOs that are, that are working. And, of course, the street. Ultimately, I guess the question is, um, if your weapons are decorating a monument and letting off fireworks and uh, chanting and trying to take on the, the job of the state in the streets and with the people, can you ultimately win if you don't have guns and if you don't respond to violence with violence or initiate violence of your own? And that is the question, of course, that is constantly being asked. But, but there's no doubting that, so far, the general spirit of the ongoing revolution is to continue to be non-violent except when provoked and in self-defense. Um, but thank you, and... Uh, well, thank you, Adaf, and I think... Um, I think I think it's kind. not often um, in a university setting that we are exposed not just to the bravery of the people that I've talked about, but the bravery of the speaker herself. And I think that it's an enormous privilege for us, Adaf, <laughs> to be in your presence and to hear your insights. Um, thank you very much, Adaf. And I would join um, Penny in thanking you, really, from having come straight from Tahrir. You know, we don't, we don't get these live, engaged reports on Newsnight. I mean, this is something very special. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for that. The question I wanted to ask is as follows. That um, one very interesting aspect of the mass movement has been that it created the space to challenge the authority of the Mubarak regime and then of the army. Um, it challenged the legitim legitimacy <coughs> of those forces. Sorry, and the, the legitimacy. No, no, of, at the very beginning of that. I said that the, 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 the movement created the space to right. challenge the authority of the old Mubarak state and of the armed forces. And I know it's something that the International State Crime Initiative is, being, is, being very, is very concerned about, is very interested in, is the way in which um, alternative definitions and understandings of legitimacy arrived from mass movements. And I was very struck on many uh, uh, visits in Cairo that one of the main slogans of the movement in relation to Mubarak and then to the army was to challenge the legitimacy by challenging the notion, raising the notion of batin, of illegitimacy. And that the question of, of cleansing, tathir, of getting rid of the bad old stuff um, has been very, very central. So my, my precise question is, to what extent has the movement been, a, been able to maintain the momentum of the idea of a type of new form of justice? Based, so 
rather than the old illegitimacy, creating new forms of legitimacy. And in, in similar movements worldwide, we've sometimes seen movements for so-called transitional justice, in which various sorts of collectives emerge, which develop their own moral codes, and perhaps, in a, some, I'm not a lawyer, but in some sense their own legal reference points. And I wonder if at this point in the revolution, there's still the momentum for that sort of agenda. People know what they don't want. And so the idea of battle of illegitimate. Yeah? Scaf became illegitimate the moment it shed blood on the Morsi became illegitimate. Actually, when he announced his first um, constitutional decree, and then even more when he shed blood on the streets, and, and so on. So the notion of illegitimacy is very clear. Transitional justice was very much something that was spoken about. And then again, it has been, I would say, hijacked because when the government speaks about transitional justice, it's not possible to see that happening now while the people in power are the people who committed the crimes. If you went through some kind of process now, it would, it would, be, a sh it would be empty. It would be a, a shell. It would not mean anything. I, th I think that it, it's assumed that legitimacy is the default position and that what you need to point out is illegitimacy all the time. I, it's a very academic question. I'm not an academic. <laughs> yes. Revolutions like French Revolution have been soaked in blood as they go along. But as people sort of develop into them, the vast majority of people actually just want stability and they will actually settle for a lot less yeah. than rights and everything sort of fall away because all they want to do is know that they're going to have meals at the end of the day, their kids are not going to be killed, they're going to be educated. Which way do you think... Egypt is going to go with that. Do you think they're going to sort of, with potential elections coming soon, do you think they are going to go for whoever offers stability or they're still going to try and push for revolution? Okay, I, you're completely right. And I think, in fact, that the stage that we're in now is exactly what you described, that people are tired, that People believe that this setup, the strong with the army and the police and, and so on, is, is going to guarantee them what they want. And most people can't be revolutionaries all the time. For a start, there's the question of earning a living and, and its temperament as well and, and so on. And so I think we're at the stage where people would go for stability and they will go for stability until they discover what stability looks like. Again, this was one of the things, one of the, 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 the cliches, the watchwords of the Mubarak regime. Let's have stability. And the scaf immediately after, until, you know, bit by bit, the notion of interrogating what stability looks like became current. Now we're back again into the same situation. I also don't know when you talk about whether they would vote for stability or vote for the revolution. I actually don't really know what's going to happen in elections because I don't quite see how the revolution is going to field candidates. I mean, obviously, we're going to try, and obviously this is one of the things that we're all, not all, but a section is, is working on. But ultimately, if it, feels, if it 
fields candidates, they will be few and we will be very happy if some of them get in so that at least you have a presence in Parliament that questions uh, what is going on or that puts awkward, awkward issues or that proposes laws or, or whatever. But I think that the majority of people right now would vote for stability, but it's not going to last. The Brotherhood um, are not going to be voted in by, I mean, the, the people who vote for the Brotherhood, if, if they run, I mean, uh, they say they won't run, and then they say they will, and the government says they can run, and then the government says they're going to disband them and they can't run, so nobody knows. But were they to run tomorrow, nobody would vote for them except their members. They are truly, truly, uh, that's, it's over. Mm. I don't think the Americans wanted Morsi got rid of. I think the Americans knew what they were dealing with. They have been talking to the Brotherhood for years. Actually fits their world vision that if Arab countries uh, get democracy, they will elect Islamist governments. And they've been getting ready for that. And it serves them in a variety of ways. So I don't believe at all that the Americans were involved or wanted to see Morsi they actually fought it. They kept on sort of wanting to call what happened a coup, and uh, and so on. So I, there, there was there was no intervention of that kind. I don't believe. Was it was it right to do it? Morsi toppled. Okay. Basically, a we're in a state of revolution. We're not in a stable state where you have a properly democratically elected government and then a rabble goes out and gets rid of it. You need to remember the circumstances of Morsi's election. When we had the presidential elections, we had the results of the first round were that Morsi got almost 5 million, and Shafi, the military and old regime man, got almost 5 million. And then all the candidates that were counted on the revolution got about 11 million. But it didn't count because they were scattered. Okay? So you ended up, so Hamdin Sabahi, for example, who was a revolutionary candidate, although I think he's not revolutionary anymore, got four point something million. But basically you had the runoff between Morsi and Shafi because the revolution was fragmented. So that's the first thing to note. And so they both went around making lots and lots of promises about being inclusive, in Morsi's case, about being inclusive, about being a president for all Egyptians, not just for the Brotherhood, about having a deputy who was a Christian and another deputy who was a woman, about uh, seeing just retribution done for the martyrs, about uh, social just everything. And so he got an extra 8 million votes. Mine was one of them. These 8 million people didn't want him and didn't want his project. Remember that. But they voted for him because they couldn't bear to vote for the other guy or to see the other guy come in. The other guy also got about 8 million. And they were also people who didn't particularly want him but were so afraid of Morsi and of the Islamist project that they went that way. So if you were coming in then on the back of a revolution under these circumstances, then it would have to be your job to pull the country together. And it wasn't for him. And what he did was he went back on every promise he had made. He turned his back on the people and on the revolution. He made friends with the uh, police. He raised their salaries. He said that the police were at the heart of the revolution and the 25th of, the 25th of January would go back to being police day and revolution day together. He ran off to the IMF 
to borrow money when the country was definitely not wanting to borrow any more money from the IMF and when the Brotherhood had spent 70, I don't know, 40 years telling us that borrowing from the IMF was usury. But now no circumstances had changed. When under his command the police killed protesters in Port Said, I can't remember how many they killed, 30, 40, and then shot at the funeral and killed more people, he came out and in a speech said that what was the problem of losing a few people if it put the country on the right track, and so on and so on. We could count, you know, when the police eventually refused to do his bidding because they thought he was driving the country into a wall, he then brought down the Muslim Brotherhood militias to deal with the protesters themselves, and so we had people killed by Brotherhood militias. So given all this, and given that the country is continuing to be in a state of revolution, and given that the constitution that the Brotherhood passed does not have a mechanism for impeaching or getting rid of a president, the people went out and got rid of him themselves. The sad thing is that the army saw the opportunity and played it right this time and came out and hijacked that real movement and offered itself as the lazy person's alternative to stability. And this is why we are where we are now. So it, I think, is a profoundly democratic act to have gotten rid of him in that way. And I wish the army hadn't hijacked it.